This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everybody. My name is Sergio Lanata. I'm a neurologist here at UCSF, uh, specifically at the Memory and Aging Center. And this is the first lecture of a series that we're going to have delving on the broad topic of neurodegenerative diseases, focusing on Alzheimer's disease, but also touching on other forms of neurodegenerative disease. This lecture should be an overview of the topic. I'm going to provide you sort of a bird's eye view of this field and um, hopefully uh, set the, the framework for the lectures that will come that are more specific to Alzheimer's disease and, and other important topics within the field of neurodegenerative diseases. Okay, So I'm just going to go ahead and start. I think today we're going to address basically three questions. You know, what are the neurodegenerative diseases of the brain? Um, what do they have in common, these diseases? And uh, in, what ways do they, in what key ways do they differ? Um, again, bird's eye view, okay? And towards the end, we're going to have uh, ample time for discussion, questions. I'm going to have two guests that are going to come over and, and hopefully we'll be able to ask, answer all of the questions you may have. So I, the way I like to start to answer these questions, I think it's very important for um, everyone to have a clear understanding of how, of how doctors think of diseases in general, diseases that affect any part of the body. Whenever we have a disease that affects any organ of the body, it's going to produce a series of signs and symptoms of that disease, right? And there's a difference between signs and symptoms. A sign is an objective manifestation of the disease, whereas a symptom is a subjective manifestation of that disease. Um, and that is objective and subjective to the physician or to the clinician or to the healthcare provider. Okay? And I'll show you an example that is going to illustrate this. Another key concept is that when you have a disease that is affecting the body um, in a particular way, it's going to produce a constellation of signs and symptoms that are characteristic of that disease process. Okay? And we doctors, nurses, or healthcare providers call that a clinical syndrome. When we see this happen repeatedly, right? If you have a disease of the liver, it's going to produce a similar constellation of signs and symptoms. Um, and we give that a name. It's called a clinical syndrome, broadly speaking. And then sometimes clinical syndromes have their own specific names, okay? So before we jump into the brain, because we follow this logic when we think of the brain, I'm going to show you an example that is going to feel more familiar to you. Uh, let's see what happens when you get an infection of the lung, okay? Here I'm showing you a cartoon. Here you have the trachea is going into the right lung, the left lung, and, and some of you may have seen these, these uh, cartoons of the lungs. It's sort of like a root system. You're taking air in, and then the trachea subdivides and subdivides into very tiny little branches until at the very tips of these branches you have an alveola, alveoli or an alveolar space. And this is basically where the air is coming in and it's getting shunted into the bloodstream, and from there it goes to the heart, and from the heart the oxygenated blood goes everywhere in the body so that every organ in our body gets the oxygen it needs. When you have an infection of the lung, what happens is that the airway, and, and specifically the alveolar spaces, get full of junk, bacterial junk, viral junk, depending on the infection process that you have. And this disease process okay, in the lung is going to produce a series of signs and symptoms that is fairly well recognized. Any physician can recognize them. So I told you that symptoms are subjective to the physician, meaning these are things that I cannot measure, 
I have to trust my patient, right? So if you tell me they have body aches, I can't really measure that. I just have to trust that that's what's going on. If you have a feeling of low energy, I cannot measure that either, and so forth, right? Shortness of breath, if it's mild and you have this subjective feeling that, you know, I'm having a hard time breathing, but I can't see you take deep breaths, I have to trust that, and chills as well if they're mild. Contrast these uh, symptoms with signs of, of this lung infection, where you would have, say, a fever. I can measure you, your fever, with a thermometer. That's objective to me, right? Or a cough, I can hear you cough. Or wheezing, I can put my stethoscope on your back and listen to your lungs make this noise it makes when they're full of that junk that I showed you a moment ago. So, I told you, right, collection of signs and symptoms, we call that a clinical syndrome. And you've all heard what this clinical syndrome is called. It's called a pneumonia. So, the term pneumonia is summarizing this constellation of signs and symptoms that tend to happen over and over again in a person that has this lung disease, this lung process that we call a lung infection. So, the concept here is that you're going from a disease process that in this case is affecting the lungs to a clinical syndrome being caused by that disease process, by that physical change affecting the organ in this case. So, that's an important framework to keep in mind because physicians you know, use this mode of thinking when they're dealing with any type of disease that is affecting the body. So let's switch over to the brain. This is a real picture of a brain. Um, but when we think of the brain, there are some key uh, concepts that make it uh, a bit more challenging to think of disease processes and clinical syndromes. Uh, and the crux of this is that whereas when you think of the lung in general, if you think of any region of the lung, top of the lung, right lung, left lung, bottom of the lung, the lungs do the same thing. They take air in, you know, they have the same physiologic process throughout, right? That makes sense. But the brain is not like that. The brain is subspecialized. We call that subspecialization. Different regions of the brain, which in turn correlate with different neural networks, connections between neurons, do different things in, 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 in uh, sort of bringing about our human condition, let's say. Um, and that's a key, key concept that I think is very, very relevant for neurodegenerative diseases, as I'm going to show you in a moment. Um, and that's a concept that we call cerebral localization. Basically, when we neurologists train, our, when we go through our training and we're trying to learn about the brain, that's what we're doing. We're trying to paint a map of the brain in our minds, in our brains, so we can then know um, where to look in the brain where we're, when, when we're seeing specific signs and symptoms. Does that make sense? So let me take you through a brief, a very brief history of what we call cerebral localization, which I define as the mostly precise science of predicting which regions a region of the brain is damaged or malfunctioning uh, based on a careful examination of a patient's signs and symptoms, right? So I'm sitting with a patient, I'm paying attention, taking notes, I'm asking the right questions. That's going to paint a picture of what are the signs and symptoms that this patient is having. You know, I'm already localizing this to the brain, the organ, more, more broadly speaking, but I can narrow it down and think of what are the regions of the brain that are more specifically uh, damaged or not working properly. So th there's a long history, basically, that led to us having this understanding of the brain that we have now. I mean, the brain is by far not a, a black box. We understand a lot about the brain, how it works, um, what regions of the brain do what. 
And so if we st I'm going to give you a very, very uh, sort of concise history of this, and, and it takes us back to the 1800s. Back in the 1800s, um, I'm going to start this story with the phrenologists. Have any of you heard about phrenology? Yeah. So very interesting idea, led by uh, Dr. Franz Gall. Um, I, I believe he was German. And they have this idea that by palpating, by feeling your skull, and picking up on certain bumps of the skull, I could make predictions about your character, your personality, your strengths, and your weaknesses as a human being. A very interesting concept, right? And if you zoom into this picture, you'll see that, for example, uh, they attributed memory to a bump in this part of the head. They attributed, like, language to this area. So they thought of the brain as, as or the, the mind, uh, really, as being compartmentalized into different little separated, you know, functions and that could be predicted by palpating the skull. So clearly, they were wrong, <laughs> but they turned out to have the right idea, the idea that there is a way of localizing functions to certain parts of the brain. Everything changed in the sort of mid-1800s when this man, Phineas, Phineas Gage, that's what the P stands for, his name was Phineas Gage, um, came, uh, his case became very known throughout the world. Basically, this man uh, was, he's an American, he was uh, uh, helping build a railway and they had to use explosives, right, to do this. And what they would do is they would, using rods like this one, they would um, put explosives in cracks, you know, in rocks, and they would push the explosive with the rod, and, and, and that's how they would, like, you know, be very meticulous about where the explosion should happen. Well, this, this man had an accident. Basically, the explosive detonated uh, before he anticipated, and the rod uh, traveled, and it entered his head, as you can see here, from the bottom of the head through the jaw and up through the frontal lobes of the brain, right? The front of his brain. What made his case extremely fascinating at the time and, and forever thereafter is that he, he lived for like 13 years after this injury. So the rod was removed, and here you have a close-up of, of how he looked, and he kept the rod apparently, as you can see here. <laughs> um, and uh, what was very notable about this case uh, was that this man was described by his friends as being very socially appropriate, hard worker, uh, sort of a gentleman and, and a very responsible person. And after this injury, even though he retained many of his cognitive abilities, there was a significant change in his personality, all right? his demeanor, his, his uh, baseline traits that made him Phineas Gage. And therefore, his friends would comment and say, you know, he's no longer Gage. You know, he was very jocular, he became socially inappropriate, aggressive, you would use foul language in public, things that he wouldn't have done before. Um, now, you have to think that this is the 1800s, so this was like completely, a, in a way, revolutionary, you know, the idea that, wow, you can harm one part of the brain and produce a very focal change in a person's personality while still retaining many of the cognitive abilities um, that you need to continue to work, and in fact, he continued to work. So he kind of changed the dynamic around thinking of the, the brain. And, and, and then came this gentleman, a neurologist, extremely talented, um, uh, called Paul Broca. Um, he was French. And he had the idea that if there were ever a phrenological science, it would be the phrenology of the cortex, meaning the outer layer of the brain, not the phrenology of bumps on the head, right? 
And he based this uh, idea on observations. What he did was he was very interested, among many other things, in studying language disorders. So people that, for many reasons, develop changes in their ability to speak, uh, to understand language. And what he did is he looked at their brains, and he began to um, localize, you know, in the brain specific types of language problems. And that's what he, what, what he was known for. And then in the 1900s came this man, also a German, uh, Broadman, who brought us what we now call the Broadman maps. And his, his reasoning was also quite uh, interesting and, and, and genial for the times, I think. Uh, he said, well, if the brain is truly subspecialized, then I can take an unbiased approach and just look at the organ under the microscope. And if there are different functions, they should correlate with different structures, right? So structure dictates function was the idea. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what he did. And he basically looked at a bunch of brains and started to look at them. It's super tedious, right? Imagine this work. You look microscopically at different regions of the brain, looking at the neuronal architecture of those regions. And as soon as you saw a difference in, in different areas, you would mark that as one region and then move on to the next one, right? And that's how he marked all of these regions, so like region number one, region number two, and region number three, four, and so forth. And each of these regions that he's outlined here, <clears throat> for instance, this region number four, um, has its own cytoarchitectonic structure, meaning its own uh, microscopic structure that differentiates it from region six and from region three. That's the idea. And then he said, okay, let's find out, you know, through observation, if these regions actually do correlate with different functions. And it turns out that for many of these regions, that turned out to be the case. So right now, for example, currently, we call this region the motor strip because the neurons that initiate movement on the opposite side of the body, so this is the left motor strip, this, this, the neurons that initiate movement on the right side of my body live here, all of them, right, for all of us. And that's why if we have a stroke that affects this part of the brain, then we develop sudden weakness of the opposite side of the body. And we, as neurologists, have all taken care of these type of strokes. However, he also found that this region was very distinct cytoarchitectonically, and it turns out that functionally, this region is almost exclusively dedicated for visual processing. So we see with our eyes, excuse me, we take information in with our eyes, but we see with the back of our heads. So... That's a fact, and, and that's how, and that's why uh, we've, neurologists have all taken care of patients that when they have a stroke on the back side of the brain, they develop sudden vision loss, um, but they don't have weakness if it's small enough. Does that make sense? So you have this idea that different regions of the brain do different things. However, this was not the case for every region that he outlined on his map, meaning there were some regions where it was kind of not clear, like if there's a you know, clear-cut function or functional correlation to that cytoarchitectonic map. And, and that brought other maps of the brain that are more closer to our current maps. And here you see different colors that take over, you know, uh, regions that Broadman defined uh, around function, similar function, okay? Are you following? Am I making myself clear up to this point? Okay, so this is closer to a map that we currently neurologists have in our mind as to how the brain works. 
And fast forward to the more modern ideas of their brain. Then we're thinking now of like networks, not so much of regions, although regions, we think of regions uh, clinically a lot, but neuroscientifically we think of networks, how different regions of the brain are interconnected neuronally um, to bring about these functions and sort of distributed networks. So if you look at this cartoon, this would be like how people thought of the brain many, many, many years ago, meaning groups of neurons doing their own thing, operating individually, and this is more of how we think of the brain now. Sure, there are subspecialized regions that do certain things, but they're also interconnected. And the idea is that you can injure, say, a region that is not like the hub of that function and it will still cause symptoms within that network or signs. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's a very, very, very brief, <laughs> perhaps biased um, uh, overview of the process of cerebral localization. And this would be an example of a map, a simplified example of a map that we clinicians have in our minds, neurologists have in our minds when we're seeing patients. So for example, we know that the frontal lobes, the front of the brain, very important for movement, as I told you, the motor strip lives in the frontal lobe. But other more abstract processes of the human condition are dependent on the frontal lobe, like reasoning, like our personality traits, our ability to multitask, concentrate, even language. When we're talking about the left frontal lobe, it's, it's very important for language function. And the vast majority of us, we have our, the networks of the brain that allow us to communicate, understand language, and express ourselves live in the left side of the brain. Um, then we can think of the temporal lobes, and this is highlighted here in blue. Also shares language functions, very important for behavior and personality as well, uh, is involved in vision, in the visual streams, because vision has to go from the eyes all the way to the back, so it travels partly through the temporal lobes. Uh, important for our topic, uh, extremely important for memory function, especially short-term memory, the ability for, that we have to learn new information, lives in the temporal lobes. And my colleague, George Nassan, uh, next week we're gonna, is going to delve into Alzheimer's disease, which is a disease that tends to affect the temporal lobes, although not, ex not exclusively. Um, and so forth. I told you about the occipital lobe, predominantly um, elementary visual processing, um, and, and other brain regions. So we have this map of the brain that we're using when we evaluate patients that come to see us with any type of neurologic disorder, first thing that we do is try to localize where in the brain is the problem. And once we have a clear sense of where in the brain the problem is, then we start to think of what is causing this problem. Make sense? So let's go back to the brain. Um, and if we take a deep dive into a normal brain, even though I've told you, right, there's all these networks that are interconnected, uh, different functions related to networks. If you really, really look deep, deep enough into the brain, it's all going to look like a a mess, right? If you look too far deeply, it's sort of like zooming into a highway and all you see is gravel, but you, you don't see like the networks, all of the highways, right? So if you really zoom in, what you're going to find is neuro, I mean, glial cells, which are these dark dots here that you can see. These are, this is one of the substrates of the brain. They're called glial cells. You have the blood vessels, just like I showed you, the lungs has this sort of like branching system of, air, of the airway that goes into every part of the lung. We also have a similar branching system of arteries, taking blood from the heart into the brain, branching out, branching out so that that bloodstream can get every part of the brain and give oxygen to every one of our neurons. 
And finally, uh, we have neurons, which are these larger cells with a, a nucleus in the center and a nucleoli. And when you look at it this way, it looks like it's quite disorganized, right? I mean, there's just no, no uh, sense to this. But uh, as I told you before, these structures, these substrates, do organize into neural networks, okay, that, that matter clinically. There's about, there's some debate, 80 to 100 billion uh, neurons in the brain, a lot of neurons, um, and maybe the same proportion of glial cells, some debate, maybe some people think there's far more glial cells, but more recently there seems to be like a one-to-one -one correlation. Now, as I was telling you earlier, right, different diseases of the brain attack different substrates, okay, any of these subjects, but also regions. So you can have diseases of the brain that tend to attack neurons in the back of the brain or neurons in the front of the brain. Um, so this is, I'm introducing another concept here, like the idea that not only diseases can attack different parts of the brain, but also different substrates, right? So to give you some examples, I've already mentioned the, what we call the cerebrovascular diseases, which are strokes. Uh, this, is, this is when an artery that is taking blood from the heart to the brain either breaks and, and um, basically all the blood comes out and, the, and the, the neurons that need that blood supply are not getting it or there's a clot, right? So that's a disease that affects primarily arteries in the brain. Um, but we also have other forms of, of brain diseases like demyelinating diseases. You've all heard of multiple sclerosis. That's sort of the prototypical demyelinating disease. It's a disease that primarily affects a component of neurons called myelin, which protects neurons. Although over time it affects other parts of the brain, but primarily it's a, a, a myelin-related disease. Infectious diseases. We've all heard of meningitis or encephalitis. These are when infections, bugs get in the brain, and they kind of attack anything. They attack blood vessels, neurons, etc. And finally, and there's many other categories, but just to give you a flavor... Um, the the pr primary topic uh, for this series are neurodegenerative diseases. These are diseases that primarily attack neurons. Not exclusively, but primarily at attack neurons. Okay? And Alzheimer's disease is the most common neurodegenerative disease worldwide. Um, but we have to keep in mind that there's many other forms of neurodegenerative diseases of the brain, some of which you may have heard of, like Lewy body disease. You've all heard of Lewy body disease. Um, it was recently in the news because uh, uh, Robin Williams had this disease, and it, it was made very public that he had this disease, Parkinson's disease, other diseases that you may have not heard of, cortico-basal degeneration, Huntington disease, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. These are all examples of specific neurodegenerative diseases of the brain. Okay? Now, what do these have in common? So I have a picture here of a healthy brain. So let's see, this brain is looking that way. So that brain is looking this way. This is the front of the brain. This is the back of the brain. This brain is looking the opposite direction, back of this brain, front of this brain. Um, I'll keep it broad. This is a, br a brain with a neurodegenerative disease, but what can you see immediately? You see the shrinkage, right? Or there's a reduction of volume, right? And I would say um, that in the case of this example, the reduction of volume is more pronounced in the front of the brain than in the back, right? If you compare the back of this brain, it looks about the same as the back of the healthy brain. Do you agree? No. no. 
relatively speaking. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't size them the same, but uh, trust me. The, the concept is that um, this is a focal process, and that's another important concept that we keep in mind when we think of neurodegenerative diseases, the idea that each neurodegenerative disease is attacking a specific region of the brain initially, in the initial early stages, and therefore it's causing shrinkage, or what we call atrophy, of those regions, right, um, preferentially. This is, this is a, a key concept about neurodegenerative diseases, that not the, the entire brain is not attacked at the same time. Different regions are attacked at different time, times in the disease uh, 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 history, and therefore the signs and symptoms, and you already know what a sign and symptom is, are different for each neurodegenerative disease. And we can see this on MRI. These are some pictures of the MRI, just to orient you a little bit. This is the right eye, this is the left eye. These are pictures taken, what we call axial pictures in this way. And what you're seeing here compared to the healthy brain below is that there is an enlargement of this side. Basically, the infolding between the brain tissue in that area has widened, right? Because brain tissue has been lost in that region. Can you all see that? Compared to the picture in the bottom where it's fuller. So basically, every part of the brain here that is showing areas of blackness that I'm outlining here with a, the with a mouse is fluid that has replaced the area where brain used to be. Okay, um, versus in the bottom picture, you see that it appears that there's more brain tissue than fluid, right? Similarly, if you look at this slice, which is a little bit higher up, sort of like this region, you see that the frontal lobes, this is the front of the brain, have also shrunken, and therefore you see more fluid surrounding those lobes, right? Compared to the healthy brain, where it appears a little bit fuller. Do you agree? Yeah. Okay. And this is a sagittal view. This is as if I were to cut the brain this way. And you can also see that there is more of that fluid between the brain tissue than you would see in the bottom. Okay? So again, this is a concept that different diseases of the brain are going to produce these focal patterns of atrophy in the early stages of the disease. And that's something that they, they tend to have in common. Um, Dr. Seeley, who is a member of our Memory and Aging Center, um, has looked at this with modern imaging, and what he's found is that different diseases of the brain, so I mentioned that list earlier, Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal lower degeneration, um, cortical basal degeneration, they tend to affect different networks, and I showed you what I mean by a network earlier, selectively, okay? So meaning the idea that in the very early stages of these diseases, <clears throat> they will attack different regions of the brain selectively and from there spread on to different regions. So the, this begs the question, right? Um, why is this happening? Why is there that shrinkage? What is happening inside of those cells, inside of those brain areas? So when, when a neuropathologist, a uh, neurologist or a pathologist that is interested in studying the actual disease process of the brain looks inside of these brains, they will, they will find a few things. Um, but I'm showing you here a little menu, okay? Uh, this menu is far more extensive. The idea is that different diseases of the brain, different neurodegenerative diseases of the brain correlate with different protein inclusions, abnormal proteins that start to accumulate in, in the patient's brain 
And over time, that progressive accumulation is going to cause damage, sort of toxicity to the neurons in those regions. So I'm just going to give you a few examples. My colleague uh, Salvo Spina is going to come back, come to the, I think it's the third or fourth lecture. He's going to delve into this more in more detail. I just want to give you a little, a little uh, overview here. So we have, for instance, what we call tau proteins, right? Um, that may come in different flavors. So the protein itself is the same, but depending on the conformation it has, the three-dimensional conformation of that protein, uh, what it looks like chemically, we call it different names. Okay, so for instance, we have a neurofibrillary tangle, which is a form of tau. This is the protein that we see in Alzheimer's disease, as my colleague George Nassan is going to show you in more detail next week. We have tau that can come in the form of a pig body. This is the, the type of tau that we see in frontotemporal dementia. Okay, and we have also tau that comes in the form of a tufted, tufted astrocyte, which is associated with a different neurodegenerative disease. Do you am I making myself clear? There's a correlation between a specific neurodegenerative disease and a protein inclusion in the brain that a neuropathologist can find, can see. Uh, likewise, with a different type of protein, the, what we call the alpha-synuclein protein, uh, which when it adopts a conformation that you can see here, the neuropathologist would say, well, this brain, I think, had Parkinson's disease. Or if it has a different conformation, it will be called Lewy body disease, okay? In the right clinical setting, of course. Yes? Oh, the question is if we can see these proteins through imaging, through MRI. Diagnostically. Yes, diagnostically or not. Not through MRI, because MRIs are just pictures of the brain, you know, the outside really, or, or cuts through the inside, but they don't allow you to see microscopically what's happening inside of neurons or around them. But we are developing different imaging modalities, especially specifically PET scans. For instance, as you'll learn next week, we have a PET scan that can detect, I, I'm not showing it here, but can detect one of the, Alzheimer's disease is associated with two proteins in the brain. One is tau, another one is beta amyloid. And we have a PET scan that can catch that beta amyloid in the brain. So that's going to be a, a topic of discussion next week. So that's the idea, though. The idea is that, these, these diseases are caused by real, um, objective sort of physical changes that are happening to the brain, which in turn are producing specific signs and symptoms, as I explained to you earlier, the difference between a sign and a symptom, that coalesce into a clinical syndrome. So each neurodegenerative disease of the brain is caused, or we can more, more scientifically say is correlated, uh, with a progressive accumulation of specific pathognomonic protein inclusions or proteinopathies, that's the term that we use, and over time, this accumulation becomes somehow toxic to the brain, right, and uh, leads to degeneration, inflammation, and atrophy, shrinkage of those brain areas. Am I making myself clear up to this point? Okay. So, you know, the way I try to imagine this is if I could put, like, grains of sand in my, in my brain, right? If I could, like, take my skull of and, and slowly, every day, put grains of sand, one, a few, no, because we have a, a hundred billion neurons, it's not going to do any damage, right? But if you do this over many years, eventually the brain will have trouble functioning properly. That's the idea. There is a lot of research and, and controversies around this concept. I don't want to say that, that it's all, like, perfectly clear, because some people say, well, maybe there's something else happening, some researchers that, that is causing this, but that's not really the cause, right? So we, there's a lot of research going on in this area. 
So basically, if we put this in a cartoon schematic, you have different neurodegenerative diseases. They have in common, they have a sort of a shared neuronal pathology, but also different neuronal pathology depending on the protein inclusion that is affected, that is causing it or, or that is associated with it. But they're all causing neuronal death um, as well as glial proliferation. Those glial cells I showed you tend to proliferate, and that's sort of a pathologic summarizing um, very succinctly the pathologic hallmarks of the neurodegenerative diseases. And this process is causing a clinical syndrome or a group of clinical syndromes. If I jump a little bit to the lecture you're going to have next week, this is how this map would look like for Alzheimer's disease, AD. So you would see in the brain um, two proteins that are leading to toxicity of the brain. One is the amyloid beta protein. The other one is the tau protein or the amyloid plaques or the neurofibrillary tangles. They're accumulating in the brain. But interestingly, depending on how this disease affects the brain, meaning what regions, and you, you know, now you have a sense of cerebral localization, as I showed you earlier, uh, depending on what regions of the brain are affected by this, by this pathologic process, the same disease process is going to cause very different clinical syndromes, okay, in the early stages of the disease. By far, Alzheimer's disease most commonly will cause a characteristic memory syndrome that everybody's familiar with when they think of Alzheimer's disease. But there's other syndromes that can happen as a result of Alzheimer's disease, which my colleague is going to um, ex explain to you and illustrate to you. These maps can get very complicated uh, for, in, for a neurologist. Um, this is a different disease called frontotemporal lower degeneration that we in our center are very familiar with. Um, unlike Alzheimer's disease, which is caused by sort of the same pathologic process, those two proteins that I mentioned, in the case of FTLD, frontotemporal lower degeneration, you have multiple possibilities of different, pathologi different pathologies. That, that may be causing the problem. As you can see here, these, each one of these is one type of, of uh, pathologic process. Um, and in turn, it causes a myriad of clinical syndromes depending on how these proteins affect the brain. Okay? And, and this is going to become clear by, by the lecture that my colleague uh, Salva, Salvo Spina is going to give later as well. Okay. So that's sort of a, a quick overview of the, the neurodegenerative diseases that sort of looking at it from the pathologic perspective and touching briefly on the syndromes. But you may ask yourself, well, what about dementia? I haven't used the word dementia, right? I've done that on purpose because the way to think of this is as follows. Imagine that this is a person that is going through the uh, neurodegenerative disease process, okay? And we know most of what I'm going to show you from studying Alzheimer's disease, but we think it also applies to many, many of the other neurodegenerative diseases I've mentioned. So this person goes through an initial stage where the person is healthy, if I, meaning that if I were to take a piece of that brain, look at it under the microscope, I wouldn't find any evidence of any worrisome, worrisome degenerative changes, okay? That's what we define as a healthy brain. But when that person gets into the sixth decade, approaching the seventh decade, he may enter what we call an asymptomatic stage of this of whatever neuro neurodegenerative disease we're thinking of. Let's say that this is Alzheimer's. What does that mean? That means that if I were to be able to take a piece of that brain and look at it under the microscope, I would already see 
these proteins and the damage that is being caused, but, but the person feels fine and the family cannot see anything abnormal. The person would come to see us and we wouldn't detect it on clinical examination. We wouldn't detect anything wrong with the person. Does that make sense? So that's sort of an asymptomatic because you don't have any signs and symptoms of the disease. But if for any reason I could look inside of the brain, I would see changes, physical changes already. Okay? Then the person enters this phase that, or stage that we call mild cognitive impairment, caused, let's say in this example, by Alzheimer's disease. And what does that mean? That means that the person is already having signs and symptoms, but they're mild. Mild in the sense that they're not severely interfering with a, with, a, with a person's independent living. The person can still go about living independently. But as the disease advances, and this person enters, say, the eighth decade, and this is very, the age ranges are very different for every individual, of course, then finally that person enters a stage that we neurologists call dementia, meaning that there is severe cognitive impairment. And by severe, we mean that it's really affecting, affecting independent living. Okay? So we use the term dementia analogously to the, we specialists, and we at the Memory and Aging Center, analogously to the way I showed you earlier, we use the term pneumonia. It just encapsulates a certain set of conditions, right? In this case, cognitive impairment that is severe enough to interfere with independent living. And we can say, in this case, I'm seeing a patient that has dementia due to underlying Alzheimer's disease. Does that make sense? Okay. So this knowledge has really shaped uh, our approach to studying these diseases. And we think of research around primary prevention, meaning what can we do to hold ourselves in this stage, to keep our brains healthy and not develop the disease, right? That's called primary prevention. And also secondary prevention. Let's say I have the disease, but I'm either in the asymptomatic phase or I'm mildly symptomatic. What can I do to stop it? drug-wise, lifestyle-wise, and uh, one of my colleagues is going to also talk to us about um, what we've learned from, from taking that approach. What are the lifestyle factors that protect our brains, that strengthen our brains, that may keep our brains healthy, or if we have a, a, uh, already an ensuing disease and it's mild, are there things that we could do that could potentially, not guarantees, but could potentially um, you know, help us fight that progression, okay? Now, I have to be frank. Um, almost all neurodegenerative diseases of the brain begin insidiously and progress relentlessly over the years. This is a fact for practically all of the neurodegenerative diseases. They do not get better. They progress. They get worse through the years. Sometimes there is a plateau, you know, where for a few years maybe it seems like not a lot is changing, but over time, big picture view is that things do progress. And they progress to the point of leading to disability and death, uh, meaning that we do not have drugs that can cure these diseases. And uh, we are, of course, us in the Memory and Aging Center and throughout the country working very hard to find cures, to find drugs that can help us prevent these diseases or stop them. Um, and I think, as you'll hear later, uh, by my colleague Julio Rojas, he will tell you all of the efforts that we've been doing to try to um, develop these drugs, and uh, we, think, we think we're close, but uh, we're not there yet, quite, quite yet. Another thing that these diseases have in common is that they, they have a very, very strong impact in society. I took these figures from the um, Alzheimer's Association. 
Um, so they pertain mostly to Alzheimer's, but we can think of them more globally as pertaining to neurodegenerative diseases in, in more, more broadly. So Alzheimer's disease, sixth leading cause of death in the United States, 16 million Americans uh, provide unpaid care for people with Alzheimer's or other forms or other causes of dementia. So imagine the societal cost of this, the economic cost. Um, estimated that caregivers provide 18.4 billion hours of care that amass to $232 billion. So very expensive disease has a, has a group of diseases. They have a very, very hard impact on our societies and our economies. So this brings up the issue of early and accurate diagnosis, meaning let's not wait uh, until a person has dementia, right? They have severe cognitive impairment that is impeding independent living, but let's try to move the the, the focus on the early stages. Why? So we can better prepare patients, families to confront these diseases and plan for, you know, economical reasons, psychological reasons, you name it. There's many reasons why it is a good idea to try to shift things toward more early stages. Economists predict that preventing or delaying the onset of Alzheimer's by five years would cut Medicare spending for Alzheimer's by half. So there's a big uh, economical push as well, because as we live longer, um, and we know that these diseases are, are one of the biggest risk factors for this disease as a whole is age. The longer we age, the greater our risk is. So um, we're working hard to try to find something that can prevent them or, or hold them off. All right, to start to finish up, what I want to do, and this is also important to set the stage for the lectures that come uh, after this one, is give you a little glimpse of how we evaluate patients. This is another thing that, that, we, that these diseases have in common, meaning that we take the same approach to the evaluation. We clinicians, um, when we suspect there's a neurodegenerative disease, we take the same approach in the Memory and Aging Center to try to evaluate these patients. So guiding the whole process of diagnostic evaluation is this map that I showed you earlier, right? So we all have this the cerebral localization map that really guides our interview and an examination of our patients. Uh, we take a very detailed history. Our history is driven by our knowledge of the brain. We know what different regions of the brain do, so we ask the right questions that pertain to each region. This takes a lot of time. Um, very important uh, for, for around this topic is that for us clinicians, um, it's very, very much, I don't know, it's easier, <laughs> it makes our job, job easier if we see patients early, right? If you can imagine, if I'm seeing a person that is having cognitive impairment or behavioral changes that they've been dealing with it for, say, eight years, it's very hard for us to, like, piece out all the history so we can make sense of how it began, where in the brain it began, and, and try to understand the disease, right? We couple the history with a neurological examination where, again, it's very much driven by the brain localization map that I showed you earlier. And this can take anywhere from one to three hours, depending on the complexity of the, of the history. Um, and um, sometimes we get different views. Sometimes family members have, one family member has one view, another family member has another view, and we have to try to, yes, question. Can you explain expressive language versus receptive language? So as I was saying earlier, um, we have a region of the brain, or it's, it's actually shared across different lobes of the brain. It's, it's mostly in the left of, the, of our brains, the left hemispheres, 
where all of the neurons and neuronal networks that are dedicated to language function live. And the way we, one way that we try to think of this is, you know, those regions that are involved in expressive language function, ability to express ourselves, and regions that are involved in receptive language function. Um, that's a very simplified way of, of thinking of it. But uh, yes, understanding what people say, comprehending the content of language. It's not about so much of once, once the message has come in clearly, has to go into the brain and has to be processed, sort of like vision that I showed you earlier. Like, you know, nothing happens in the eyes. All of the processing happens in the back of the brain, most of the processing. Um, then we couple that neurological evaluation with what we call a neuropsychological evaluation. And these are basically paper and pen examination tests that are ideally performed by a neuropsychologist where the patient comes in, they do a bunch of tests testing the different regions of the brain. Again, it's very much you know, guided by the cerebral localization, testing different regions, testing memory function, executive abilities, language function, and ob obtaining sort of a, a more objective sense of how the brain is working. The advantage of this type of testing is that we can compare those results to... Uh, results of other normal people that have the same age and education as the subject we're testing. So we have a sense of where that subject stands compared to a bigger population, right? Um, and and we're, we're basically correlating the neuropsych testing with our examination and, and history. And then we couple all of this with investigations. We do imaging, um, we may do blood work, we may do other forms of imaging that you're going to hear more about uh, next week. Uh, we may do cerebrospinal fluid analysis, a lumbar puncture. And again, you'll, you'll hear more about the utility of cerebrospinal fluid analysis next week as well. Because, you know, as I showed you earlier, um, or maybe, I, maybe this wasn't so clear, when we see a person that has cognitive impairment, meaning even cognitive impairment that is severe to the point of, you know, uh, causing uh, disability, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person has Alzheimer's disease or that the person has a neurodegenerative disease. It may be something else causing that impairment, right? It may be even certain vitamin deficiencies, like B12 deficiency can, can cause a lot of confusion and cognitive impairment that may look like Alzheimer's disease, okay? So that brings up the importance of, you know, like saying that someone just has dementia, right? When you take your loved one to a doctor and the doctor says, oh, I think he has dementia, that's not enough. We have to find out why the person has dementia, right? So basically, you combine the neurological evaluation, neuropsychological testing, investigations. Key is the level of independence, how independent that person is, and all of that together gives you a clinical diagnosis that then you use to come up with a plan, a treatment plan, a support plan for the family and the patient. Okay, so... Neurodegenerative, just some key points, you know, neurodegenerative diseases differentiate themselves according to their microscopic or histologic characteristics and their tendency to selectively affect different regions or neural networks of the brain. I think I've showed you that. Um, another key concept is that depending on that regional involvement of different diseases in the early stages is what dictates the different clinical syndromes that you're going to learn about more uh, in subsequent lectures. And that's the concept of cerebral localization that I showed you earlier. Um, in general, with a few exceptions, uh, neurodegenerative diseases advance very slowly, and they go through these stages, we think. 
um, where a person may be even in an asymptomatic phase for years before they become mildly symptomatic and before they enter a more later dementia stage of the illness. Uh, although we don't have drugs that can cure or stop these diseases, we do have a lot of drugs that can help symptoms, that can um, support patients and families. We have a lot of you know, management strategies and, and more recently preventive strategies too, that we, and you'll learn more about those as well later. And um, as I also mentioned, the, the accurate diagnosis, and by accurate I mean when a person comes to my clinic after, say, eight years of disease and then uh, the family wants to know what is causing this, that can be a little bit challenging because it's been such a long course and I'm seeing the person late in the disease. Um, so uh, just, just something to keep in mind, I think, uh, for, for, for you guys. And as I mentioned, there's many reasons. I haven't mentioned all the reasons why early diagnosis is important, and, and we're going to talk about, a little bit more about that later as well. So I think that's all I have. Thanks for your attention. Now, I have two uh, amazing guests today. I have Dr. Bruce Miller. He is the director of our, a founder and director of our, of our Memory and Aging Center. Basically dedicated his whole life to this field. And we also have Marie, Dr. Marilu Gorno-Tempini. She, um, she has also dedicated part of her life to the, to the study, a big part of her life, to the study of these neurodegenerative diseases. And her area of focus has been on studying the neurodegenerative diseases that affect language function. So that, that's mostly been her focus. Um, so we have them as guests, and they're going to help us navigate any questions you have. I will start off with a few questions for them, and maybe we can get the audience going. So uh, my first question is to Dr. Miller. So uh, maybe you can provide us with a sort of a historical view of things, because you, you've been in this field for a long time, and um, I would put you next to Paul Broca maybe uh, later down the road. <laughs> he was never wild. <laughs> So uh, I trained as a fellow in behavioral neurology between 1983 and 85, and I was probably the first generation um, in the 20th century that uh, focused uh, particularly on dementia. And at the time, uh, the teaching was that all dementia was Alzheimer's disease. And, and there had been a very strategic reason why that happened. And that was a, a very brilliant man named Bob Katzman in 1975, who was studying Alzheimer's disease, realized that there was no funding for Alzheimer's disease. To put that in, in perspective, we, we think, uh, for incredibly uh, complicated but good reasons, that our budget at the National Institute of Aging uh, in 2020 will be $3 billion. Uh, so around that time, it was maybe $100,000. And, and, and he, he uh, uh, looked at a number of studies that showed if you were in a nursing home and you die with a, a cognitive disorder, that uh, it was very likely that you showed plaques that uh, Sergio talked about and tangles. And so people correlated one-to-one -one Alzheimer's disease with dementia. And um, I think it had a lot of really good things that happened. Uh, the NIH started to put money into funding this. Uh, uh, clinics started to think about it. But I, I think the next uh, uh, big wave of uh, 
findings was the realization that very specific genes, and they've been knocked off one by one. The first was uh, discovery that the amyloid protein gene, if mutated, could cause Alzheimer's. And a little bit later, it was discovered that another gene called presenilin would cause Alzheimer's. And then a little later, it was learned that there's a gene that uh, uh, many of us carry, ApoE4, that uh, increased the likelihood of us getting Alzheimer's disease. So that, that was in the 90s, and they were all Alzheimer's genes. Uh, but then around 1998, uh, genes associated with a different dementia, frontotemporal dementia, were discovered. Soon after that, genes that cause Parkinson's disease were discovered. And, and I think simultaneously we, uh, in the field, we started to realize that we needed clinically, if we were going to make any progress, uh, to differentiate Alzheimer's disease from frontotemporal dementia, from Parkinson's disease with cognitive impairment. And, and so slowly we have evolved, uh, you know, I think in a very sophisticated way, our diagnostic capabilities. In fact, they have far outstripped our treatment capabilities. Uh, so we are now um, incredibly precise. Don't, don't believe that you can't diagnose. Sal Salvo may tell you this in a week or two, but yes. don't believe him, that you can't diagnose uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, without a pathologist. We're incredibly accurate at seeing those proteins in the brain now and mm -hmm. when we're living, and we may be perfectly asymptomatic. So I think our diagnostic ability is now precise mm -hmm. for most of these conditions. Uh, we can start to see changes decades before someone gets sick. And I think uh, you will hear about this new wave of therapies that are focused intensely on early uh, interventions. And I, I think the next decade will be the decade where degenerative diseases start to have really powerful therapies. So that's one stream. And then just one other quick one, which is, a lot, uh, the three of us work very closely in our Global Brain Health Institute, and that is very focused on this other side, which I think many of you must be interested in, which is we know that if you live a certain lifestyle, uh, if you're lucky enough to be uh, born in a family where you get a good education, where nutrition is good, where you see physicians who treat your hypertension, you are um, a third less likely to get Alzheimer's disease. So I think we've learned that how we live our lives, and uh, uh, if, if, again, some of this is luck, just where we're born, but uh, a lot, uh, the way we use our brain in life, the way we uh, are stimulated in our daily activities, whether or not we exercise. Uh, uh, my Pilates teacher is here. Everyone must do Pilates at least <laughs> once a week. So these are you know, some of the things that we're learning. Great. Um, and I also have a question for Dr. Gorno Dempini, uh, because one of the, in my opinion, one of the fascinating things about this field, too, is that we learn so much about the human condition, really, by studying the neurodegenerative diseases, I mean, and, and like the, the whole concept of localization. And we can tell us a little bit about your trajectory and how more recently you've become interested in you know, studying dyslexia uh, based on your experience studying the language disorders caused by neurodegenerative disease? Sure. Um, so 
Uh, as, as Sergio was saying, I'm particularly interested in language in the brain. So the networks in the brain that have to do with language, which is a very unique human function of all the ones that we've talked about, is basically the only one that is really specific to humans, especially written language, how written language developed. So we don't have a language, uh, written language gene. The brain hasn't had time to evolve to develop specific circuits for reading and writing. It's a, it's a relatively new function for us. It's 5,000 years old. So we don't, we don't, it's not enough for evolution to create a new brain circuit. So in some ways, it is an incredible example of brain plasticity. How do we take the areas of the brain that we use for speaking and seeing and we turn them into a machine uh, that is so efficient at reading and writing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's a very specific machinery that has specific anatomy and physiology in the brain. And what we started seeing in our clinic for adult patients and, and aging patients with these specific neurodegenerative diseases is that in certain people, those are the networks that are attacked by these diseases. So, and in these um, individuals, Alzheimer's disease, instead of causing a problem with memory, it causes a problem with, for instance, speaking or reading or writing or remembering words. And memory of everyday events is totally fine. And this is very puzzling. Why the same disorder, the same proteins that Sergio was talking about, amyloid and tau, in certain people hit the areas of the brain that are uh, involved in memory and in others the ones that are involved in reading and writing. And, um, and we're still studying this. This is a big focus of our research. But what we started noticing is that when we started asking and listening to those uh, stories that patients tell us that take uh, so long and that we love so much, they tell us so much about the person, is that s certain um, uh, the majority of these individuals told us that they had trouble actually learning to read and write when they were children. Um, and actually they weren't readers all their life. They did fine. They had a lot of strengths and um, in other cognitive areas, but their brain somehow was always kind of asymmetric. So that language network uh, that later on was affected by these disorders um, might have developed differently to, to start with. And that actually our brain health, is a, it's a lifelong journey that we need to look at. It's not that when someone becomes 18 years old, then we don't ask them anymore how their brain functions developed to start with. And so that there might be some susceptibility of specific brain types and specific ways in which the brain develops um, that predispose us or, or protect us uh, from developing some symptoms on, on that pre-symptomatic pre uh, phase that Sergio was talking about. Uh, we also call this cognitive reserve. So there might be some individuals that have a longer asymptomatic phase because they've used their brain enough. They've had higher education. They've learned, kept learning new things, kept exercising their brain. And so that, area, that period of time in which maybe the disorder has started, um, but the symptoms don't occur, might be longer. So in that sense, uh, someone who has a developmental disorder like dyslexia might have a weakness in the language system, but we can also say they're protected in their memory and visual-spatial functions. So they only develop a problem with language, and they don't develop a generalized dementia until much later. So we've 
in um, trying to pursue this line of research, we started seeing children and family with uh, neurodevelopmental uh, differences and, and to try to understand um, this um, lifespan approach. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the question is, what about genetics? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, there are certain forms of the of these disorders, especially that start very early. Um, let's talk about Alzheimer's disease. There are forms of Alzheimer's disease that are genetic, and they're very clearly inherited. There is one gene that we call dominant, and if a, a person have it, their children have 50% possibility of having it. They're very rare, and they usually start very early in their 30s. Uh, different neurodegenerative diseases have different links to different genet- genetic mutations or genetic predispositions because they're really different diseases from a molecular point of view. So, for instance, frontotemporal uh, dementia that we study um, in our center is more frequently genetic than Alzheimer's disease and can be caused by different mutations. But as Dr. Miller was saying, oh, do you want to? Oh, either you or I should say a word about polygenic risk. Yeah, okay. So, so yeah, I mean, Marlou was talking about these unusual genes, but gosh, we see a lot of people who worry. My father got frontotemporal dementia in his 50s. Uh, you know, that's very young. Um, do I carry a gene that causes frontotemporal dementia? So we, we think a lot of that about that with people. But the, the more common genetics, and... and my friend Giovanni Coppola at UCLA, who's a, a really superb geneticist, thinks about 65 to 70 percent of Alzheimer's disease has a genetic component. But it's much more complicated than a single gene. And so what, one of the, the most brilliant uh, people I ever met is a, a radiologist named Raul Desican, who uh, is beloved to us. He has developed ALS. But with the condition, he has just done this pioneering research on polygenic risk scores. And, and we think in the next decade, when you come to see your doctor, whether it's as a child or as an uh, older person, uh, the, the physician uh, will, or genetic counselor will be able to say to you, well, your polygenic risk score for this set of diseases is fairly high. These are some of the genes that we think you can do something about uh, by lifestyle, by vitamins, by other, other interventions. So most of us, if we get Alzheimer's disease, there are two big factors. One is age, and it's a myth that this disease uh, stops uh, once we hit 90. It continues to go up. Uh, so, you know, if you're a centenarian, um, you're pretty unusual if you have cognitive uh, 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 normalcy. So age, and there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, and maybe Salvo will talk a little bit about that. But the other is having genes that increase or decrease our susceptibility to different diseases, mm-hmm. and also, whether it's Alzheimer's, ALS, you name it. Question here in the front. The question is if we've ever had experience with ele- electroacupuncture for treatment of Alzheimer's. Yes. I don't think we have. Um, we one of the lectures in the series will delve on alternative therapies, what value they have. Um, so we're going to delve into that topic a bit more. So I'm, I've been asked to repeat the question, so I'm going to repeat that question. The question is: so what, what we're trying to say is that maybe my grandmother's Alzheimer's 
neuropathologically was not really Alzheimer's, it was something else? And the answer is a resounding yes. I mean, it's, it's uh, every time I hear, I'm taking a medical history, and any of us are taking a medical history, and we hear, oh yeah, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, the next question is, oh, tell me about her symptoms. Like, do you know what she had? Tell me the story. So that opens up a whole discussion about what were those symptoms. And for example, if we start to hear, and Dr. Miller can talk more about this too, like if we start to hear a story of, you know, early behavior changes that led later to dementia, then we think, well, maybe it wasn't Alzheimer's. Maybe it was frontotemporal lower degeneration. I don't know if you want to add... Yeah, or if the first symptoms were visual hallucinations, it's right. often part of a Parkinson's. The, the, uh, just the other thing I would add is, I think we have uh, 30 Alzheimer's centers across the United States uh, that study people longitudinally from the time they're healthy into uh, a, a disease state, and if they uh, want us to study their brains after they pass, we do. And one of the big findings, I think this is relatively new, is um, we think once you reach the age of 80, uh, you may well have more than one protein mm-hmm. responsible for your degenerative disease. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not rare to see someone over the age of 80 who has Alzheimer changes that are significant, but also some changes in Parkinson uh, circuitry. So they have Lewy bodies, alpha-synuclein. Mm-hmm. They may even have some frontotemporal dementia proteins, plus some vac- vascular disease. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I mean, just my belief is that we've oversimplified this uh, process, and I think it's led to catastrophic results in drug trials. I mean, mm-hmm. for me, uh, one of the most catastrophic billion-dollar failures was thinking that we could lower amyloid in the brain of 90-year-olds or uh, 95-year-olds and expect that we would have a dramatic uh, uh, cure for these conditions, when in fact some of them didn't have amyloid in the brain even. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think your your question's a really really good one, and I think we're going to go in a very different direction specific, we know exactly the cause, then treatments may really work. So the question is, are there like uh, specific signs and symptoms that mean, okay, you have to get checked? Um, we're going to delve a little bit more into that in the next lectures when we start, when we get more in depth into Alzheimer's disease. But um, I, I think I can say, if, and, and you, you can comment as well, of course, but There's no single sign or symptom that means you have to get checked. I think the way I see this personally is we all have a sense of who we are, you know, our our core traits and strengths and weaknesses cognitively. Like we heard before, like the concept of cognitive reserve and what are our, our strengths. When we feel that any of these aspects is has is being attacked by, you know, you feel like it's not just a senior moment or like the occasional oh I forgot my keys but something that you're seeing happening daily and over the course of months to years is getting worse and other people are noticing it that is clearly a reason to you say you know I, I should be checked because I, as I said earlier not every um, person that has cognitive impairment has Alzheimer's disease or a neurodegenerative disease there may be something else going on healthy wellness checkup. Yes. Right. And that's what I was going to say. Don't hesitate. If in doubt, get checked. We get our, you know, routine blood work and our routine blood pressure checked. And we should get our brain checked routinely as well. And we'll have soon more and more 
effective tools to do that, digital tools that hopefully will make available to primary care physicians so that they can check our brain muscles, let's say the brain networks very easily at our yearly checkups. And then we, we can have, because the best way is to have longitudinal, to have many assessments. Yep. So I wouldn't hesitate and don't be scared. We're not scared to check our blood pressure. We shouldn't be scared to check our brain functioning. And, and this is a, usually a motivating factor for people that participate in healthy aging studies too, to come in. We have a healthy aging study. We start seeing people in, even in their 40s. Um, that come and check in with us every year, every two years, and we do a comprehensive evaluation, and we collect all this data for research so we can understand aging. Next question, in order. Yeah. Um, the question is the relationship between sleep apnea and cognitive impairment more broadly, I guess. Yes, sleep apnea is one of the medical conditions that we know is a risk factor for cognitive impairment. Um, so whenever we see a patient that is having cognitive issues and has a specific type of cognitive, we think of obstructive sleep apnea. Like, is, is that a diagnosis? Do we need to work up the patient for obstructive sleep apnea? The good thing is that there is a treatment for obstructive sleep apnea. It's not a great one because it involves a mask um, at night, but most people get used to that mask. And once they, once they uh, get used to it and they can see the benefits the following day, then they just don't want, want to go anywhere without it. I mean, that's my experience. Next question. Yes, sir. Maybe Dr. Miller can address this question and, and repeat it. Dina, Dina Dubal's uh, research, the clothoprotein. Yeah. Uh, so uh, about six years ago, uh, Leonard Mukey with uh, Dina Dubal um, studied in, in, in mice and humans uh, uh, and, and the human part, Jenny Okoyama was the scientist who worked on this, uh, a gene that uh, we carry clotho. And there are different forms of clotho. And if you carry the right form of clotho, uh, you live longer. Uh, not only that, but you seem to have a slightly bigger right prefrontal cortex. Um, I would love to have that. I probably don't have the, the right gene for that one. But um, with, with that said, I think there's a lot of hope that uh, this might be uh, druggable so that we could uh, get the right level of clotho in our blood uh, to get that boost in aging uh, that is associated with it. And so th this is very much the area that Dina ha has worked on since she... Uh, uh, left working with Leonard. Uh, and I think it's a very interesting area, and it, it would be part of our polygenic hazard score. So if you have the right combination, it would lower your susceptibility to getting Alzheimer's disease, probably. So th this is just one of the thousands of genes that uh, smart people are thinking about. So now in our research, we get the whole genome on everyone. Every single person in our healthy aging, uh, in Mari Lu's language cohort, and Sergio's uh, cohort of homeless population in the city, and um, people in the mission. So we, we are just getting huge amounts of data. And, and think, you know, uh, slowly but methodically about what, which ones of those genes might be protecting us, which ones might be a target for specific therapies. Um, question here. 
The question is environmental factors and if there's a link between them and different diseases. Any, do you want to take a stab? Well, I mean, I think, Sergio, uh, we, we're all thinking a lot about this. Uh, so in our Global Brain Health Program, which is focused on underserved populations who have greater risk for these, uh, you know, environmental uh, pollutants, um, uh, this is a big deal. Uh, uh, in California, Carly Tanner has shown that our migrant workers have a much higher, not, not a little bit, but a big higher prevalence of Parkinson's disease, almost certainly pesticide-induced. Uh, one of our fellows next year is coming from University of California, Fresno, to, and she works with the farm workers to try to clean up the environment uh, for, for, for the workers in the fields. But of course, it's relevant to everybody in California. If you're eating food with pesticides, uh, you know, this can't be a good thing. Um, Tuck Finch recently at USC did a really elegant study, looked at people who lived ag uh, right against the, the uh, Harbor Freeway, the 110, and showed that uh, if you lived right adjacent to it, you had higher rates of um, pollutants in the air and higher rates of uh, Alzheimer's disease. So, we, we, we've just come back from Brazil, which is a beautiful country, gorgeous country, with massive pollution issues. And this will only compound the other risk factors like low education in certain populations, uh, yeah. lack of uh, universal health for people. So th this is really an important area. I, was, I just wanted to say that apart from chemicals, environment, you know, we need to think of the brain as really plastic and so the environment in terms of trauma and lack of education and uh, psychiatric disorders depression are also very um, important in protecting the brain and delaying neurodegenerative disorders so that's what something that Sergio and I are very passionate about I have a study in prisons and and uh, um, uh, Sergio in, in the homeless populations, and it is really striking to see the effect on the brain of these um, incredibly stressful living situations. And they would certainly be a risk for um, brain health in the aging stage of life as well. Sure. So, um, you know, as, as we've already mentioned, uh, uh, we I am interested in studying uh, what we call the most upstream uh, factors that may be contributing to neurodegenerative diseases, right? So we tend to think of, you know, if we first focus on the disease and we start to think of the risk factors like medical conditions, behaviors. But as we've already mentioned, there's a whole bunch of, like, social conditions, um, the, what we call the social determinants of health, that affect brain health, right? And so the work that I'm interested in doing is leveraging the amazing projects that we have in the Memory and Aging Center and collecting these detailed histories, these life course histories of people, people across all walks of life, you know, homeless people, people who have become homeless, um, people that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, different life trajectories, and objectivizing that information and then correlating that with brain health. Um, so, so the way that we're doing that is by partnering with different organizations in the city and in the Bay Area, community centers that are seeing patients from very diverse walks of life. Um, and 
you know, I run a, a volunteer clinic in in the mission, another one in the general hospital. I, I go there uh, and see patients, and we also give talks in the community like this one so we can get people motivated, you know, people across the city, different neighborhoods motivated to come to our center. And once we're, they're in our center, we can have these very detailed discussions of their life, right, and trying to objectivize that information and then correlate it with brain health. That's my hope. Okay, so let's start again in the front here. So the, the question was, is it, um, there is some uh, maybe uh, increased ability to diagnose um, neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's disease, but what is the trajectory in treating it, and will there be an arc maybe like in HIV? And I think there certainly will be. And I think the issue was that we weren't diagnosing these diseases properly. And at that point, when we're not diagnosing it properly and we really don't know what's going on in the brain, what is causing these symptoms, then we cannot treat it uh, uh, um, properly. So as, as uh, Bruce was saying, if we treat uh, Alzheimer's disease just as an amyloid disease, even just how we're not looking at and, uh, and maybe within those trials at the beginning, we, we really did not have molecular diagnosis back then. So probably there were a lot of patients that didn't even have Alzheimer's disease to start with. So correct diagnosis, correct um, differential diagnosis is the starting point to then develop what I think will be multi-therapy uh, um, treatments based on these polygenic risk factors and environmental factors, so there will not be just one treatment. Yeah, I, I like your question. I'm not t quite as pessimistic. Let, let me uh, <laughs> phrase how I, I think we, where we are with treatment. So uh, it's disappointing, I know. And, um, uh, and I think there have been uh, you know, no really new compounds since 1997 when uh, a compound called Denepazil or Aricep was FDA approved. There's another one, but it doesn't work uh, nearly as well as Aricep. And so the average person who takes, if they really have Alzheimer's or if they have a Parkinson-type uh, degenerative disease, I, I like to say in my clinic, I, my hope is that, and on average, the person who takes this is about where they were after nine months. So it's not a cure but it is somewhat uh, improving where people are for, I, I think, a significant period of time. Then all sorts of unbelievable surprises from people like Mari Lu. So l let me just give you one example. Um, her, 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 uh, I, I would never have thought that the progressive aphasias, they're progressive, right? Uh, they're degenerative. They're bad proteins. Uh, could have a, a, a behavioral intervention. But uh, Mari Lou and her group, uh, a woman named Maya Henry from Texas, have shown that um, the different types of aphasia, if you give a smart intervention, um, uh, can really uh, be slowed down. And uh, uh, let me give you one example of, of something that was very touching to me. So I, I have a patient I was very close with who had a progressive language disorder, and I talked with him in June, and he said, my, my daughter's getting married in September. He could barely get that sentence out. And he says, I want to give a speech at her uh, wedding uh, in September. And I just thought, no, not impossible. So Mari Lou's team started working with this uh, gentleman, uh, worked on the script, uh, practiced it over and over again, 
Um, and uh, he, he gave the most eloquent speech at the wedding. Everyone was in tears. Uh, he came back, you know, to our clinic. You know, he was like a hero to us. And, and, and the data, I mean, the data is really good. It's really good for speech interventions. It's not a cure, but it does something. Uh, really good on exercise. I think data is not terrible around uh, diet either. Uh, so I, I, I do think we have interventions. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the big powerful cures, biological cures, I do think will come. Um, and, and I think we work with the best biologists in the world at UCSF. I think that's our responsibility and mission. And so we're working with the discoverers of CRISPR to think about whether for certain genetic forms we could edit out the bad gene. We think that will happen five years, eight years. So I think really great therapies are just around the horizon. But doing nothing or not you know, intervening um, is, is the worst thing that can happen. Um, here. Um, the gentleman who practiced with your speech and, and did that speech, did he hold on to any of those gains? Okay. So um, different symptoms are diff in, in different brain networks are more trainable than others. Um, it's not, they hold on for a while and they hold on for longer if you practice longer in the right way. Um, as, as Bruce was saying, they're not cure. But giving another year of speech to someone whose speech is declining really fast is still very significant. And there's been this kind of uh, attitude of there is nothing to do. For instance, speech pathology was not even covered for these uh, patients. And, uh, and it's really not fair because even, you know, it's covered only for patients who had a stroke and lose language. And not all of them recover. They get a little better, but they might not recover, but it's still covered by insurance. And for our patients, who sometimes are very young, in the 50s and 60s, it was not even covered because it was kind of this pessimistic idea there is nothing to do, and it's not true. There is a lot to do. Um, so I didn't mean to be pessimistic at all. <laughs> I'm very uh, optimistic on how much we can do. On the molecular cure, we're not quite there yet. But um, of course, we need to do uh, interventions, even cognitive intervention, really based on the most accurate um, uh, diagnosis of which networks and which symptoms are affected. And it's the same that we see with children with developmental disorders. There is not one dyslexia. There is a lot of developmental, different developmental strengths and weaknesses that we need to really diagnose exactly to give the right intervention that is effective. So the, the question is, if we could comment on the work of Dale Bredesen. It's a package of uh, things that... Uh, are well known and I believe in, like exercise, uh, uh, Mediterranean diet, um, prevention of uh, cardiovascular risk factors, so standard care, I think, a lot of vitamins, um, which my guess is do more harm than good, um, but um, uh, nobody's going to study it, uh, including Dale, so we'll never know. It's expensive. If you're a fireman, you could spend your whole pension on it. Um, we, let me go to the next row, and then we'll come back. Yes, sir. Just in the past day or two, I heard something uh, in the 
delay news about um, a possible cure for Parkinson's disease. Mm. British, I don't think I'm dreaming this. Um, I, I, I wondered if, what, they, what it was that they found. And I'm also curious, what's the relationship between Parkinson's and, and, uh, and Alzheimer's disease? And why, yeah, what, how are they connected? So let me, let me say something about cures. So, um, you know, I started uh, studying Alzheimer's as a fellow in 1983, and I would say every six weeks there's been something in the news, and God bless my patients because they always come to me before I've read it, but that have <laughs> cured Alzheimer's disease. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's the nature of news, and uh, they w want to take a, you know, and, and it doesn't go into where the study was done, you know, how. Uh, so I can say that this isn't a cure, but at my age, I'm, I'm, I don't run down to the drugstore right away, you know, when I hear about these things. So that, that would just be one comment, not, not that it isn't really a, a great. Uh, uh, intervention, but um, and it'll come one day. You know, one of my patients will say to me, "I read about this, and it cures Parkinson's." And you know, I'll, I'll go, "Well, okay, I need to look at this." And then it really does cure Parkinson's. So it'll come. It'll come. But I haven't read the article. Uh, so my my HuffPo and Google it hasn't come to me for some reason. So. Uh, <laughs> But I, I will. We will investigate it. Have, has it come to you? No. I, when you said British, I wonder about stem cells. They do a lot of stem cell yeah. Yeah. In, in PD, but nothing definitive yet. A quick comment. Um, we don't know. Uh, a heck of a lot of people with uh, who get Parkinson's go on to get Alzheimer's pathology and Alzheimer's symptoms, and have the two together. I think they're, they're too commonly co-associated for it to be a coincidence. I mean, I think maybe the misfolding of one protein triggers the misfolding of the others. But it's a great question on which there's way too little research. Over here. I haven't heard anything about the downside of coming in early Yet it seems like there's a, a really small proportion of people who are going to personally benefit from an early diagnosis. If you are already eating well and exercising, but you're seeing some decline, aren't you just going to get depressed on top of that? <laughs> I'm not joking really about this. Um, you say don't be afraid to come back. <laughs> We'd like to be challenged. Do do you wanna take a step? Yeah. I my my uh thought on that is 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 that it really is uh individualized. I mean uh, and as a as a physician when I'm seeing a patient and this is part of the reason why we try to spend so much time with our patients because I feel like I really have to get to know the, the patient or feel that there's trust, mutual trust and 
and get a sense of why is the person there, right? Maybe the person is there because he or she wants to make sure there's nothing going on, right? Or maybe the person is in the clinic because they're absolutely convinced that there is something going on, and to them, receiving a diagnosis is, is a form of treatment, really, because you can close you know, all these doubts that you have as to what's going on. So I completely get your point that you know, from our side, we want to see as many people as we can, you know, but um, on the other side, uh, I think all of us respect that uh, position, right? And we're very cautious uh, as to, you know, but there's no formula to that. It's all, uh, all of it is like what happens in the room and how you feel. It, I agree, yes. I think we have time for one more question. So I'm going to... Yeah. I have to take the challenge a little bit. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I like what you said, too. But, um, you know, it, it depends on how much, uh, you know, you want to live in uncertainty. You know, and, you know, I can tell you the other side of this, which is most of my patients with frontotemporal dementia, because of lack of insight, make catastrophic financial decisions that lead to bankruptcy for the family that uh, cause car accidents that lead them to being arrested. So, uh, you know, that's obviously not you. But, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, you know, the question is, um, you know, uh, no, number one, do you want to live in uncertainty? Uh, can you brush it aside and put it away so that it's not a concern? If not, I, I, I would say 98% our, our, of the time, people are happy to know. And people who come in say, I don't want to know. My father never wants to know. He will, you know, hurt himself if you tell him. Almost never is that the case. And, and I think, you know, if you're dealing with uh, smart people who don't jump the gun on diagnosing bad things when they aren't there, I, you know, I think it's often very healing. And, you know, we have stopped demonizing these conditions, you know. It, if you have mild cognitive impairment, I, you know, I think it's, um, it's, it's probably good to know. Start uh, initiating plans around that, being more vigorous in your uh, therapeutic interventions. There are medicines that help a little bit. So I, I'm, not, I'm not saying everyone benefits, but I think a lot of people do from having more certainty about what, what's going on. Can All right. I take the challenge too, just yeah. one second. There's not a lot end. of misunderstanding too. And when we talk about early symptoms, sometimes they might be unusual. And we see a lot of families and relationships that get ruined by misunderstanding and thinking that a person doesn't care mm -hmm. and that uh, a, a person is become irritable. And so there, there, there is also a lot of misunderstandings can happen in families and communities because of misinterpreted symptoms. I think that's all the time we have. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.